you need to pray for me. I've got an allergic reaction to something. I don't have a cold. I feel fine. I just sound terrible. So I need you to pray for me so that God can speak through me to you. I would say in all probability outside of a miracle, this is as good as my voice is going to get this morning. But it's not my voice you've really come to hear. You've come to meet Jesus. Have him speak to you. He's here. And he's got an appointment with you. He's got something he wants to do for you, say to you. So bow your heads and uh, just quietly pray for me, will you? That I might have voice. Voice enough that you hear what Jesus has to say to you. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Take this uh, enfeebled voice and speak through my lips. Take our minds and think through them. Take our stubborn wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts on this celebration of Pentecost and fill them with the joy of loving you. May your spirit fall upon us as we have sung and prayed. May these moments alone with you, as if we were one by one with you, count for eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the I am, this or that, that Jesus said and spoke, we've been studying for nearly two months now. Different one each week. But just to refresh, as we close out this series this morning, to refresh your understanding of what Jesus was saying when he simply said, I am. Granted, he said, I am the door, or I am the light of the world, or I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the door. This morning, I am the true vine. But when he's using that simple introduction, I am, he is speaking as if he is God, because he is. So, for instance, the Jews understood that in his saying, before Abraham was, I am. Another, another one of those statements. Before Abraham was, Abraham had been centuries dead by the time Jesus said that. 
Abraham the first of the people that God called, by which he then created his chosen people. And we'll be looking at Abraham over these next weeks. But Abraham was dead and gone. Jesus said before he was, I am. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying, and they took up stones to stone him. They understood that he was claiming divinity. You may remember, and if you don't, I'm going to remind you, that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the olive grove, praying with his disciples, anticipating being taken, betrayed, executed, and buried the very next day, all that was to take place. As he's praying, so a gang of club-wielding, sword-carrying guards come into the grove, and the disciples and Jesus huddle in some sense, and Jesus says to them, it's pitch black, no street lighting, dark of the night, in an olive grove. He said to these intruders on their prayer time, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And in the English it says, I am he. That's what you read in the New Testament. I am he. But as he would have spoken in that day, he was literally saying, I am. And when he said that, they were all knocked to the ground. They fell backwards on the ground. It wasn't because they were shocked that he admitted to being the man they were looking for. When he said, I am, the power of God blew them away. I wonder how they had the guts to get up from there and take him captive. I am. And in these I am statements, he's describing what kind of God is presenting himself in Jesus. So when he says, I am the good shepherd, it's God as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. It's God as the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So here we're looking at Jesus saying now, as we look at it this morning, I am the true vine. Now, he doesn't just say, I am the vine. That would be enough. But when he says, I am the true vine, he is emphasizing that he is the one 
authentic source of life, spiritual life, life that's potent, life that is world-changing, an eternal life that is eternity-changing, that he is the one source of that life. He is the true vine. When he's speaking about being the vine, he is speaking about being the source of life. A potency that is, as I have just said, life-changing and eternity-changing for us. And in the power of that same Spirit makes us world-changing advocates and emissaries of Jesus. That's some life. So Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now as he says that, he then describes a number of things about it. If you have your Bibles, or I'm going to be looking at some verses that go beyond the verses in the service sheet. But Jesus, in saying, I am the vine, tells us that we have been chosen to bear fruit. Verse 16 of John chapter 15 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that would last. God is looking for us to be productive for him. He has made us his own so that we might be fruitful, that is productive for him. And everything about what you have in front of you points to it. Look at the verses. If you just look inside your service sheet, you'll find the opening verses of John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. So the very next thing he says is this. He, the gardener, the father, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That is a very challenging statement. It's very interesting, by the way, it's not a by the way, but it's something I'm returning to. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he goes on to say that the Father, almighty God in heaven, is the gardener, the vine dresser, the vintner, the one who prunes the trees. You would normally expect, if Jesus were just pointing to God as someone else other than himself, that he would say, the Father is the true vine, and I'm his immediate gardener. Wouldn't you? But that's not what he says. He says, I'm the true vine. My Father does the pruning. Another point by which we can see that Jesus is claiming 
co-equality with God, divinity. The Father coming to prune those who are joined to Christ. And the first pruning job that's described is when there is a non-fruit-bearing branch, stem, it is cut off, pruned out. That's how much God anticipates and desires that you bear fruit for Him, that you be productive for Him. It's a very serious statement. Now, I know that in your own hearts you have the longing. It's an innate longing that God has planted to be significant in what you do with your life. Every single one of us here, not one of you gets up in the morning and says, how can I be a non-entity today? How can I get through the day without anybody noticing me or seeing that I'm significant? How can I just blow off another day, waste another day of my life, and be completely and totally inconsequential to anyone? Who gets up and thinks like that? If you do, you need to come and see me or one of our pastors. You need help. But innately, I know in us, we desire to be significant. So much I could point to. I've got to keep moving here. But we desire to be of consequence with our lives. We do want to count for myself. Some of you know my dad died when I was seven years of age, actually committed suicide. He left my mother with three boys, of which I was the oldest, only age seven. My brother Tony was like six or five and something. And then there was a little one of maybe two years of age. It was in the Second World War. We've just celebrated the storming of the beach of Normandy this week. I was a little boy tucked up in bed in England when that happened. We were in the middle of the Second World War in England. We were being bombed. We were sleeping in air raid shelters. My mother was poor and had to work to make ends meet so that we could get by. And I can tell you this. That little Johnny Guest had in his own heart, despite those very unhelpful circumstances, the desire to be someone. I wanted to do something with my life. And so, in some sense, I knew I would. So when Jesus says that we've been chosen to bear fruit, it's almost as if he's coming up to you and saying, as he was kind of instilling in me, you want to get something done? You want to be of consequence? You want to be significant? You want to leave your mark in history? You don't want to just take up space. You want to make a difference in somebody else's life. Be a hero to someone. Be of consequence to someone. You want to count. 
He's the way. He is the life. To be engrafted into him is how that happens. And he's not messing around. So beyond that, it goes on to say, and when you do bear fruit, look at it in your service sheet, he prunes you that you may bear more fruit so that you will be even more fruitful. So he's not content with just a little bit of fruit. You start producing, he starts pruning. That's the way it is with a vineyard. They don't have branches with leaves on just wasting airtime and sun time. Anything that's not producing fruit is pruned back so that everything is poured into the grapes. Pruning is painful. God's going to take stuff out of your life that you may be very much attached to. But in order that you be of consequence for him and that you fulfill the purposes for which he died on the cross for you, he's going to prune back your life. In fact, I was smiling to myself this morning, very unhappily in a way. I thought to myself, Lord, are you pruning me? I've come to preach and I've got no voice. A preacher without a voice is a man without a job. Are you pruning me, Lord? He wants you to be the best you can be for him. And he's got a great plan for your life. And that will include pruning stuff out of your life in order that you can produce for him with your life everything he gave himself for, for you to have a life that's of consequence. He is committed to your being productive for him. Second thing. This may come across as just a little more encouraging. But verse 11 of John chapter 15 says this. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Did you hear that? Jesus is saying, I've told you this because this is coming a little later in the text. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy be complete. Jesus was a joyful man. He speaks about my joy. That's his joy. And his joy being in you. And when his joy is in you, it compl- there, is a, there is a joy that he brings, an exuberance to life that you're not going to get anywhere else. Possessions, charm, good looks, graduation, the right husband, the right wife, the right kids, the right home, the right car, the right church. You're in the right church. The right church doesn't produce that. It's a unique joy that God himself gives you through Christ. And Jesus is saying to you, as if he were speaking to you personally, 
look, I'm teaching you these things. I'm telling you this stuff, not to put you under some terrible obligation or make you intimidated because I'm going to prune you back. Because I've only got one thing in mind for you, and that's you be productive for me. He has that in mind. But when we are productive for him, when what I'm describing here literally happens, Jesus brings a joy and satisfaction that nothing else can compare with. And some of you are longing, you're thirsting for that joy. It's in Jesus. When it says that your joy may be complete here, I think another translation sums it up better, that your joy may be full, that you may be joyful. We don't talk about having complete joy. We talk about being joyful, full of joy. That comes from Jesus producing in us what he has made us for and redeemed us for. Now, what is that fruit? Simply put, it's Jesus' fruit. Let me explain. You probably know this. As a lad, we actually grew up learning how to engraft into an apple tree another twig from a different kind of apple and produce... This was in school. We did gardening in school. We did horticulture and agriculture in school, amazingly, because we didn't live on a farm. That you can engraft one kind of apple twig into another apple tree and get a different kind of apple than both produce. That's how you get different grapes from which they produce different wines. They engraft into a grapevine from some other grape vine, a twig that grows and produces a different kind of grape. And what Jesus is talking about by way of this allegory is that we get engrafted into him. When it speaks about remaining in him. I know that to be a weak translation. The original language of the King James was to abide in him, to be in him, fixed in him, fastened to him. And you can see that in the word remained, but it, you don't catch it. To be engrafted into Christ is to have the life of Christ flowing into you. It's no wonder that he goes on to say, therefore, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, of course, there are all kinds of things we can do apart from Christ, but we can't produce what he's looking for, and that's a fruit that looks like, smells like, tastes like, sounds like, if fruit can make a sound, Jesus. It's the product of his life flowing into us. It's not something we have to prove or produce by way of trying to please him. 
He produces it in us if we are engrafted into him. His life flows into us and we produce fruit after his kind, after his character, out of his life, by his power. In Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23, I'll just read them for you so that you'll know I'm not making it up. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. That is the fruit of which God himself at work in us through Christ Jesus produces. That's a whole new kind of world. Now I know the temptation for us is to go out and try and act like we're Christians. In fact, I don't know where you come from. I'm looking out over this congregation and a lot of you I really do know and some of you I should know and some of you are visiting. But the temptation is this, to think that we have to do something for God to earn his pleasure. Whether to earn a way to get to heaven, to be good enough, to do the kinds of things that good people do, that Christian people do, So we start doing things, and we look pretty good. But it's not produced by the Spirit of Christ in us. It's just something we're trying to do to look good for Him. Let me put it this way. Over in England, as a little boy growing up, when we were naughty, and I and my brothers were, most of the time, in trouble, when you got home from school, we were put to bed, sent to our bedrooms, without any tea. Now you come home from school starving, and tea time in England is a very special time. You have a cup of tea, kids drink tea in England, and a little sandwich, maybe a little cake, something to stem you over until dinner time. But when you've been naughty, You get sent to bed, your bedroom, without tea. I spent a lot of time there alone. I heard of two boys, lads, who didn't mind being sent to their bedroom because coming up to their bedroom window up against the side of the house was the branch of a tree in the back garden and they would just open the window and climb out onto the branch and down the tree and into the back garden, out of sight, and play. See, we don't have screens on our windows in England. We have barely any bugs. You open the window and it's just straight fresh air. So you could climb out through the window, down the branch, and amuse yourself. These two boys were sitting at the breakfast table one morning when Dad looks out the window 
And he says to his wife, the mother of the two kids, I think I'll cut down that tree this weekend. It hasn't borne any fruit for years. It's shutting out the sunlight, and when the leaves drop, it makes nothing but a mess. Well, those two lads commiserated with each other on their way to school the next morning and decided that they would pool their pocket money, what uh, Americans call allowance, and go and buy a big bag of bright red California-grown apples, which is what they did on their way home from school. Came back home, climbed up the tree, and tied those apples all over the tree by the stem. So now you've got this tree outside with all these amazing, brilliant red apples tied up here and there around the tree. Next morning, Dad looks out the window. He says, that's a miracle. Well, the kids start kicking each other under the table, you know, saved. He said, that's a miracle. It's a pear tree. (laughs) The reality is that even if they tied pears on it, they would not have been produced by the tree. Closest we come to it, I think, is when we decorate a Christmas tree. We put all the lights on it and all the stuff on it. Well, we know it doesn't belong. It didn't grow out of the tree. We just put it there and made it look good. You can tie stuff all over your life. Read the Bible, go to church, tithe, become a preacher. Sing in a choir, turn up at church. If Jesus, if you are not engrafted into Jesus... And it's just stuff that you are doing in order to somehow try to please Jesus. To somehow try to get close to him and impress him. It's not produced by Jesus. It's not native to Jesus. Even though it looks good. So to come to the final point of the whole teaching of Jesus... It's the need to be engrafted into him. That's what is said all the way through the passage. To remain in him, to abide in him, to be connected to him, to be engrafted in Jesus and have his life flow through yours. And it becomes all about Jesus, not about you. It's about your trust in him. Put another way, in fact, several ways, to get at what he is looking for, it's to have you put your absolute and complete trust in him. That is to surrender yourself so completely to him that it's as if you have abandoned yourself to him. You just hand it all over. You surrender to him. 
you yield your life to him. And he's here this morning. Do you want that kind of life? It's Jesus you're looking for. And he's looking for you to come to him and simply entrust yourself to him. It's a heavyweight relationship. All the relationships that are described in the New Testament between us and the Lord Jesus are heavyweight relationships like the chief cornerstone or keystone, like a foundation on which everything is built. Listen to this. The church is called the bride of Christ. In the Bible, that's like getting married. Dating doesn't cut it. Shacking up doesn't work. It's getting married to Jesus. Being devoted to him. When I got married to my wife, Kathy, I used an old prayer book from 1662, which was a modest revision of one that was written in 1552, about a century earlier. And this was the marriage vow. With my body, I thee worship. With all my worldly goods, I thee endow. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. When I walked out of there, I'd given everything to Kathy. That was the deal. Now, by the same token, she'd given herself to me. But I was concerned about what I'd just given to her. It was all of me. Nothing held back. Nothing in reserve. I want to say to you folks out there, if you're in a marriage or looking to get married, you want a great marriage, you want to do it God's way, you give to each other everything you have. It's not a partnership in the sense that you each share a little of what you have with each other and some things in common along the way. A real marriage is when you give all that you are, each of you, to each other. In fact, that's now what this church uses by way of the words when you give the ring to your spouse, then as she or he becomes. Kathleen, I give you this ring, and with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. That's it. Let me ask you, have you ever made that kind of surrender to Christ? You just using him and sending him a text message occasionally? Going online to get a little bit of information or advice with him occasionally? What's the deal? I trust that the Spirit of God, as we have prayed, is speaking to you out of these scriptures. Bow your heads with me and let's talk to him. He is right there with you. He knows and loves you. 
You want your life to count for him. You want to be of consequence and significance to someone else, to a very needy world, to people in your life, to folks with whom you work or live with in your family. Do you also want to be filled with joy, a spiritual exuberance that overwhelms any other kind of satisfaction in your life? I'm going to ask you if that's what you want to give yourself as you are this morning to Jesus. To give yourself so completely that as best you can tell you have surrendered yourself all of who you are all of what you have and everything you may become to him. I'm going to ask you to say out loud with me words of commitment such as I have used already. If you're able to say these words with me, I'm going to ask you to say them out loud, but it is just between you and Jesus. But it will help you just to hear your own voice saying these things to him as he comes to where you are sitting. So say to him, dear Jesus, I love you. Dear Jesus, I love you. Thank you for offering yourself to me. Thank you for offering yourself to me. I want to be completely joined to you. I want to be completely joined to you. Engrafted into you. Engrafted into you. I want your life to flow into me. I want your life to flow into me. So I give myself to you, Lord Jesus. So I give myself to you, Lord Jesus. With my body, I thee worship. With my body, I thee worship. With all my worldly goods, I thee endow. With all my worldly goods, I thee endow. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. I am yours, Lord Jesus. Till I see you face to face. Do the pruning you need to do, Lord Jesus. I want to be productive for you. I want to be productive for you. Change the things you need to change, Lord Jesus. Things you need to change. 
I want to have your joy in me. Thank you for this new beginning. Thank you for your promise. Thank you, Lord Jesus.